You are listening to The Heart and the Head, an evening of storytelling and music, where researchers from the Wellcome Trust Centre for Human Genetics, the Jenner Institute and Cancer Research UK all shared true stories from their lives in science. It was recorded at the Oxford University Museum of Natural History on the 10th of October 2015. The evening is called The Heart and the Head, and we happen to have a song um, about heads and hearts. This is the head one. Um, this is uh, a song I wrote many years ago about a uh, kind of standard, uh, you know, song about a uh, disembodied philosopher. Some of, who, you know, uh, some of you may have heard of him before. His name is Jeremy Bentham, and this is a song called Jeremy Bentham's Head. And I believe it's true. surprised as if he's just realized he's dead the case is locked with five separate keys two you turn simultaneously just in case some ucl student tries to roll him round again Because the real head tried to find a key to open up the greatest door and understand this thing called happiness so we would be in chains no more to map it out with logical laws to single out those logical flaws I believe that this endeavor well is still the greatest of all Utilitarianism, the fallacy, the calculus, and cleaning up the prisons, a wider vote and an equal share. It was the rates, law, state, schools, modern underwear, yeah, and that's just a fraction, a moderate selection of ways that he helped to change society's direction. A drop in the ocean, the sum of the notion, starting life in Jeremy Bentham's head. When he began his mortal slumber And we're a long way away from that greatest happiness For the greatest number And with each passing year 
doubt has trickled like a leak Until the modern mind is too confused to speak And all philosophers are up to their eyebrows Swimming in words tendency to ramble a lot, I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, so I'm going to keep my uh, contributions brief, so we're going to introduce uh, Irina from the Welcome to Centre from Unigenetics. Irina, It's Wednesday. It is so early, it's still dark outside. And here I am, already in my office, sitting behind my computer, staring at my screen. The latest nature editorial on it. And guess what? My name is not there. Of course it's not there. I am a third year PhD student. I still don't have a single paper, a finished project, any significant results. Nobody invites me to give talks at international conferences. They don't ask me to give lectures to university students. I will never make it. I'll never be in nature. And to top it all off, today my student is giving his final presentation. This is probably one of the worst students humanity has seen so far. For the past five months that I've been supervising him, he was late, literally every day. He was not finishing his assignments. He barely spoke to me and it felt like I had to squeeze the words out of him. And I never saw him smile. But the truly terrible moments were when he had to give his intermediate presentations. He would always be very nervous, 
he would always be uh, walking in front of the screen, shaking, trembling, his voice mumbling, forgetting the words. He would always wear a t-shirt with ketchup stains on it and shorts. So, to make him look less embarrassing, and also to make myself look less embarrassing, I said, let's practice beforehand. So yesterday, we practiced again, and again, and again, and again. And it was not really getting better. So I asked him, is it true that you're not really trying that hard? Or shall I say, not trying at all? And the reply was fantastic. He said, I'm not a native speaker. There was a Dutch student giving a talk in English. And I'm a student. Professors don't listen to students' talks. So why would I bother? That's the spirit. But anyways, it's time to go to the presentation. I enter the room and I see it's full of people. 50 or 60 of them. The majority of them will see my student for the first time. There are professors, there are group leaders. And it's lunchtime, so people are entering with food. They're eating, some of them are chewing really loudly. I mean, where are your manners? Some of them are playing with their phones, some are yawning. And then my student enters. And he is wearing a clean, white, iron tip shirt and he walks to the laptop where he puts his presentation and he makes his slides full screen and he starts talking. From the very first words, his voice is so confident. He's not mumbling. He's standing steadily and firmly and he's not making this awkward little dance in front of the screen. I take a glimpse at the audience and I can see some people put away their phones, some people are chewing less loudly, and the majority of the audience is actually looking at my student and his presentation. So he keeps talking, and then he reaches his final slide, and he's waiting for questions. And professor don't always care about student talks, so not all students get questions. But I see that there are quite some raised hands in the audience. And there are questions, and he's asking him, answering them. And this whole thing is actually making sense, and he looks like he knows what he's talking about. So, the presentation is over. People are coming to me, they're introducing themselves. Uh, they're congratulating me with a successful student project and successful student presentation. Some of them are saying, this was a very nice talk for a student, it went so smoothly. Probably you were just lucky to get a student with perfect, excellent presentation skills. I look at this guy, I think back about yesterday when we had to practice for six hours straight. 26 times we had to repeat the presentation. So I look at this guy and I just smile and say nothing. Anyways, it's time to go back to work and I'm leaving the room. And as I am leaving the room, I look back at my student and he's busy, he's talking to other people, but he notices me and I smile at him and he smiles back. It is Wednesday evening 
It is so late, it's dark outside. And here I am, in the office, sitting behind my computer, staring at my screen. Latest Nature editorial on it. And yes, I'm not there. But I'm thinking to myself, I made this guy give an astonishing talk today. I can make anything happen. Well, you know, at least science-wise. So you will see me in nature really soon. So the next true tale from the life of a scientist is going to come from Anna from the Walkthrough Centre. Over to you. I work in pattern recognition. My job is to take large data sets, identify the patterns which occur naturally, and then to detect deviations from those patterns things which are abnormal and potentially harmful. Now this is something which we all have an innate ability to do and which we do every day, whether it's crossing a road listening for cars or reading someone's body language or facial expressions. Now, my story today is set in somewhat less familiar circumstances. I'm on a camel. The desert stretches out in front of me. Behind me, a village of about a hundred squat villages. by the impact of his steps. The surface of the sand is covered in ripples created by the wind. It's a repeated, tessellating pattern as far as the eye can see. A single tree marks the spot of our camp for the night. And in my relief to get down, I land too, too quickly, sending shockwaves at my unsuspecting body. The tea, we make chapatis, rolling the dough, kneading it in and out, over and over and then cook them on the open fire. The guides make um, curry to go with it. Um, but Mark doesn't like curry, so he has his chapatis with jam. Night falls. The sky turns dark. The sand beneath my feet goes from hot to cold, and a calm rolls out across the desert. We unravel the blankets, and as I lay, lay down on them, they emit a stench of old camel sweat. I look up at the beautifully clear sky and try to pick out familiar patterns in the unfamiliar stars. The only noise is the noise of the wind. It's soothing, repetitive. Blowing, then stopping, then blowing, then stopping, like a lullaby. Just as I'm about to drift off, I detect a slightly different noise. Somehow different, somehow faster perhaps, more urgent, more blowing, blowing, blowing. And waiting, waiting. 
Perhaps it's a piece of paper or a leaf that's got caught in the wind. It'll go away. It doesn't go away. It's still there, blowing, 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 then waiting, waiting. Perhaps it's from the corner of a blanket or a scarab beetle rolling a particularly large piece of dung past my head. It doesn't go away. It's still there, blowing, 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 then waiting, waiting. Eventually, I sit up and put my torch on and shine it in the direction of the noise. There, in the full beam of my torch, is a snake. The light disturbs the guides. One of them runs over, grabs the torch from my hand and holds it fixed on this snake, trapping it in its headlight. Is everything okay? I ask. No problem, no problem, he replies, but his hands trembling slightly. The other guide runs over with a big stick and whacks his snake. Its thin, sand-coloured body contorts through the air. They reply, a slightly manic look in their eyes. They hit the snake again and again until its spine is broken and it's lying there dead and motionless. The only thing to distinguish it from the rest of the sand is a, the, the diamond pattern down its back. They dispose of the body and we lie back down and just before going back to sleep I ask, but you seemed kind of scared. And again they reply, no problem, no problem. If it bites you, then there's a problem. I lie awake, listening to the noise of the wind on the sand, blowing, then stopping, then blowing, then stopping. One night, I woke up. It was dark, and the room felt warm and stuffy. I had a pain in my stomach, and a sort of ticklish throat. It felt as if there was a worm in my throat. So the next day I went into work. Uh, work was a tiny room deep in the bowels of the science building. It was behind two sets of locked doors. It was uh, about the size of a student's kitchen, low ceiling with polystyrene tiles, and lying along the ground. And on two sides were workbenches. And the workbench just directly in front of me there was a big incubator. And on a tray beside the incubator uh, were six glistening glass beakers. From these beakers, there was emanating an incredible smell. It filled the room. It was acrid. It smelled like fermentation gone wrong. A kind of sickly sweet odor. It smelt 
a little bit like a pig's guts. And that was no coincidence, because the contents of these jars came fresh from an abattoir just that morning. Inside uh, these beakers were parasites of a pig, giant worms about 20 or 30 centimeters long, giant intestinal nematodes. So I put on a pair of gloves and I reached into one of these beakers and took out a worm. I pinched its head region between my thumb and finger and its tail between my little finger and my ring finger and held it there. These worms are very strong. They're a little bit like pneumatic tires. There's a fluid-filled cavity running the length of a worm and around it rings of muscle and lines of muscle the whole length of the worm. So when the worm wants to move, it compresses these muscles against the fluid and it writhes and it twines. So I could feel this worm like the flexing of a finger against my hands. So I held the worm and with my free hand I picked up a needle and syringe. It was full of a colorless liquid. And very carefully I inserted the needle into the fluid of the worm. I gently injected some of the colorless liquid into it. Then I put that worm into a fresh beaker and one by one I injected all of the other worms. Then I put all of the beakers into the incubator. The incubator was at 37 degrees C. That's body temperature because the worms like body temperature. So then I got some industrial bleach. There's a big ball of industrial bleach on the ground. And I got some blue roll. And I poured some of the bleach on the blue roll. And I began very carefully cleaning every square inch of surface. It's very important I did this. If you look at one of these worms, they have a skin that's sort of semi-translucent, sort of milky white. And underneath the skin, filling the whole lower two-thirds of the worm, there is what looks like ribbons or confetti. These are the reproductive organs of the worm. So when I'm holding one of these worms, they're spraying out eggs. They're spraying out eggs on the surfaces. They're spraying out eggs on the floor. They're spraying eggs all over me as well. And the only thing we know that kills these eggs is this industrial bleach. In fact, we're not even sure if that kills them. If you look at these eggs under a microscope, they look like circles surrounded by jelly. And it's this jelly that stops getting anything getting into the worm until the worm is ready to get out. these surfaces very carefully because these parasites don't just infect pigs, they've been known to infect humans as well. Pig farmers working on organic pig farms, sometimes even scientists researching rumors. So after I cleaned all the surfaces, I went home. 
And that night, I woke up. It was very dark and the room felt warm and stuffy. And I had a pain in my stomach. And I felt like there was something in my throat. Now, I knew that whenever a worm wants to leave your body, it takes the fastest route available, which is through your mouth or through your nose. So I waited. I waited for the worm to emerge. Hello again, thank you all very much uh, for um, having a nice break. <laughs> so what happens if you start a sentence and don't know where it's supposed to end. Here we are. Um, so we're going to, the, the James Bell and the Half Moon All-Stars are going to treat us to a tune, so I'm going to hand it over to James Bell. All yours. Um, okay, we're just having some violin surgery going on behind me, but in the meantime, um, what I didn't mention is that what we mainly do um, is traditional English, uh, I don't really call it folk music, but traditional English music, um, uh, mainly from the 1600s and 1700s, um, and what we'll do as soon as we're plugged in is a, a tune set, three uh, different tunes, I think from the 1600s, um, and one is called Newcastle, one is called Portsmouth, and one is called Jamaica. Um, and so the uh, tune set is imaginatively called uh, Newcastle to Portsmouth via Jamaica.
Okay, so uh, next up uh, is Portia from the Welcome to Center. And we're coming towards the end. 
that common thread, that tune that we recognise. And then one, four, five, one. And that's just like us. That sophistication that's in all of us, that goes on and on throughout time. It started with us, and if you go back, you've got the apes, the mammals, primitive mammals, the therapsis and the synapses, the dinosaurs, the 3.8 billion years it goes on. And that's what I study specifically. A particular species, the particles of all things. I look at its unique tune, its complexities and sophistications, which will hopefully provide insights to help understand our unique complexities and those of other life. So we have one last speaker uh, to tell you a story, and this is Daniel from uh, representing Cancer Research UK. So over to you, Daniel. I look at brains with MRI scanners. Most of the time I scan my own brain, or the brains of my friends and my co-workers. I've been scanned hundreds of times. I don't even remember the first time I saw a picture of my own brain. I look at the same brains over and over again. I've seen some of them so many times that I can recognise people from their brains alone. They're all unique, although we use tools and so we're only interested in the brains and we remove the parts of the image that are non-brain. We strip away the skin, the skull, the eyeballs. We use some software called the Brain Extraction Tool. And every brain is slightly unique. They're as unique as the people who own them. A little asymmetric, a little wiggle here or there, an asymmetric lobe, a large artery or vein that make them quite distinctive, just as distinctive as their owners. And it comes that I can recognise people just from their brains. When new people join the lab, they always sign up for the rotor to volunteer to be scanned. The first time you scan someone, there's always that slightly tense moment. There's always that small chance that you might find something. Fortunately, I've never found anything, nothing of interest in any of my friends or co-workers. Most of them are quite young, and so it's fairly unlikely. But just in case, we have a procedure. You are not to show people scans of their own brains. In fact, we're not allowed to. It, that way, we don't have the situation where we'd promise to show someone their brain. And then as they come out of the scanner, you look at them with a nervous voice and sort of go, no, 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 you can't look. Because that would be bad. And so you just say nothing to them, thank them for their time, 
and then you contact the senior radiographer and let them know that you have an incidental finding. So after a 12-year streak of good luck, where I was extraordinarily lucky and had never found an incidental, or perhaps it was my friends and co-workers who were extraordinarily lucky, but the luck ran out and I had one. It was a young volunteer, someone I didn't know, and they were in their early 20s. And when their first scan appeared on the monitor, there was something there. It was odd. I asked my coworker to have a look at it. There's probably nothing, he said. They probably just moved during the scan. We'll just keep looking. We keep scanning, and the second images appear, and there's still something there. And it's right in the middle of a really important white matter network bits that connect your motor cortex to your spinal cord. And every scan, we can see it there. And it looks like it's, it's looking back at us, ominously, threateningly. We're just physicists. We don't really know what we're looking at. We're not neurosurgeons. It might be nothing. Everyone's probably got one of those. We complete the scan. The volunteer leaves the scanner. We thank them, we smile, we wave, we thank them again. We laugh a little too loud at a joke that wasn't very funny. At the moment they're out of the room, we send the email to the radio audience. Such a short email, hardly any words at all, just incidental finding. From that point on, we have no idea what happens next. We're scientists, we're not part of the process. The radiologist will send it on to the neurologist. The neurologist will decide if it's a problem and will contact the person in their GP. And we never know what happens. We have to just carry on. About six months later, life goes on, science goes on. I'm still scanning brains. And I go to a talk that was being given by one of the senior neurologists. And he's talking about how we handle incidental findings. Are we doing it right? Are we doing more harm than good? Should we change our procedures? Most of it was just waffle. There was no real content, just a discussion. But he has some examples. He's showing slides. Take this one, for example, he says. An image appears, stripped of all identification. No names, no dates, no locations. No brain, well, no, there's a brain. There's no skull, there's no skin. And it shows a lesion. This, for example, a completely benign lesion. No trouble whatsoever, required no intervention. Could the subject perhaps have been better off not knowing about this? Could they have just been upset over nothing? And I stand there and I look at the image, stripped of all identification, stripped of skull, of skin, of name totally unidentifiable by anybody. Anybody normal, that is. And I smile. So, uh, 
James Bell and the Half Moon All Stars are going to feed us for uh, to a few extra tunes since we have a little bit of extra time. So I'm going to hand over to James. Thank you. Okay, we're going to um, uh, end with uh, one of uh, a song I wrote, which is about the heart. Before that, um, seeing as we're in a um, uh, sort of cathedral to science, uh, we thought we would do um, two songs about our favourite scientific animal, the mer the mermaid. Um, so, uh, and there are a lot of mermaid songs in traditional English music. I think it's "Lonely at Sea." Um, and, but this is this is an example of how mermaids were uh, seen a few centuries ago, rather like the Flying Dutchman. If you saw one, it was a sort of bad omen. And this is a song about that. But we tried to make it cheery to kind of offset that. I'm in total control. One Friday morning, as we set sail, not very far from land, we landed a spy of their pretty maid with a comb and a glass in her hand, a hand, a hand, with a comb and a glass in her hand. While the raging seas did roar. And a bold young man was he Oh, I have a wife in fair Bristol town But a widow I fear she will be, will be, will be But a widow I fear she will be For the raging seas did roar And the stormy winds did blow And we jolly sailor boys are up into the top And the land lovers are down below, below, below And the land lovers are down below
drown when she recently have a look at the stonework on the arches when you go out and yeah you'll know this but, but but some of them were kind of very uh you know got this intricate carving and then they decided not to pay the uh, carvers and then they stopped so uh, <laughs> <laughs> i uh, should back actually put that but yes back right this is the other one uh, and this is another mermaid one um and this is about uh again a sort of fairly recurrent thing that would happen to people in the 18th century of being alone on a little lighthouse island and then um, being confronted by your mother who's a mermaid who wants to find out what's happened to your siblings and you have to tell them that um, one of them has been eaten and the other one's in a freak show. It's called The Keeper of the Edison Light.
Right, um, do we think it's that sort of crowd? Okay, I'm, I'm really sorry about this, I'm going to have to hand you over. No, actually, before I do, um, can I just introduce everybody? <laughs> Sam Twig, Mark Baldwin, Josh Hall, Josh Robson-Hemmings, Louise Thurman, Callum Mitchell, Hannah Gray, Tracy Rommel, and Vince Lynch. Um, and I'm James Bell. And now, you're in the frightening hands of Josh Hall. Hello, I'm Josh. Um, you'll notice I'm the person, only person who isn't plugged in tonight, and there's a specific acoustic reason for that, and that is James is insecure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's quite true. Uh, so, dinosaur jokes. Um, <laughs> what does a dinosaur get after it has a spicy curry? A megasaur ass. So, right, you've grown, but the first thing you tell him work on a Monday morning. So. We'd like to compute, uh, conclude this evening's uh, talk. It was, we'd like to conclude proceedings this evening by doing a fun little pop song in which we all learn something about the cardiovascular system. Woo! Yeah, science. <laughs> so it also has actions. Do you feel like doing actions? Yeah. Tough. You're doing them anyway. Yeah. <laughs> right, everyone on their feet. Sorry, again. I Your own feet. Right. The actions are as follows. The heart is a muscle, so the textbook says, the more that you use it, the stronger it gets. It's quite easy. The stronger it gets, the better you feel. So meet me tomorrow at the whip and wheel. They need to go through again. It's quite easy. The heart is a muscle, so the textbook says, the more that you use it, the stronger it gets. The stronger it gets, the better you feel. So meet me tomorrow at the whip and wheel. There we go. The Easy enough. The advantage of playing a fiddle is I never have to learn that. <laughs> <laughs> right, are we ready? A one, two, three. And the heart is a muscle, so the textbook says the more that you use it, the stronger it gets. Peace. 
Ahead was organised by the Wellcome Trust Centre for Human Genetics, with support from Cancer Research UK and the Wellcome Trust. Our storytelling researchers were Irina Polyakina, Anna Fowler, Erwin Atchison, Portia Westall and Daniel Bolt. Music was by James Bell and the Half Moon All-Stars.